Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, this is The Ruler Podcast, supported by Lacquer, bicycle insurance powered by the community. On this edition, I'm joined by the pro cyclist turned clothing manufacturer, Yanto Barker. And later on, I'll be talking to Australian legend Phil Anderson, the first non-European to wear the yellow jersey. Well, first off, uh, welcome, Yanto. When you uh, launched your clothing brand, Le Col, you said it was after 20,000 hours in the saddle as a pro cyclist. Was that a guess or was that actually sort of accurately measured? Uh, that was a very, yeah, accurately measured. <laughs> uh, I'm someone who's kept a diary for most of my riding career, so I could look back and go back to see exactly what I was doing and how often I was on my bike. So yeah, 20,000 hours. And they say 10,000 is enough to be an expert. So hopefully it keeps going. Well, you're an expert at uh, riding the bike. What was it made you think that you could kind of become a clothing manufacturer? Uh, probably a combination of things. I mean, the fundamental thing is I am a driven and ambitious person and I feel like I need a project or projects that I can really get my teeth into. I'm someone who will get very frustrated and edgy if I don't have something to do and I get, you know, I don't like being bored. I'd rather be too busy than not have enough to do. And um, obviously, having ridden my bike for many, many years, uh, you have to go out when it's your job. And there's a big difference when you leave school and that's what you do for a living. So when you're naturally going out and doing five and six hours in the rain, because you have to do that, that's your job, then you start thinking, how can I make this better? (laughs) Because this is really uncomfortable. And we're all, as pro cyclists, used to discomfort and pain and suffering. That is part of the job, unfortunately. But there are different categories of pain. And suffering, and so trying to eliminate the the basics and just make make it all about the performance was a real kind of interest I had from quite a young age. And then, so the other sort of overlaying factor was the fact that I wasn't getting paid as much as I thought I should be doing. I hadn't achieved the results that I'd hoped to by the age of 25, 26. And so my mind was starting to think and wonder what else could I do and how else could I apply this drive and ambition into another area. And And this was while you were racing as well. Yeah, so I actually took three years out of competition. Uh, 2006, I did the Commonwealth Games on the 25th of March. And then I stopped racing until uh, about the 11th of February 2009. And I came back to racing in order to promote the brand that I'd started in the meantime. Um, the, we didn't officially start trading until 2011, but I was working for a long time behind the scenes and riding my bike again and actually enjoying it a lot more in the second half of my career. When it comes to the sort of choice of kit and the quality of kit, you are a bit of a stickler for the right stuff, aren't you? Yeah, I'm one of those rare people that will say the customer is wrong. (laughs) 
which my team find really uncomfortable. But the fact is I am an expert and 20,000 hours, probably more now, 25,000 hours since I probably quoted that number. I haven't looked, so that's a guess. You know, I, I know what I'm talking about. I know how a product's supposed to fit. I know what size a person should wear. Uh, I know all the sensations they're going to go through when they do wear that kit. And I've analyzed that, collated that, and then created buckets of areas that I want to improve first. And then obviously second, third, and fourth, make sure that we have a continuous evolution of the product. But, you know, I would describe myself as a compulsive analyst. And so, you know, I am always, always on thinking about what's happening here. Why is, why is this, you know, feel like this? Or why does that feel like that? Or why is this person saying this? Or why is that person saying that? They have to make sense to me. Otherwise, I feel very frustrated. So I spend a lot of time making sense of all the things that I encounter in the business. And how much does it matter to you what it looks like as well? Yeah, look, looks are very subjective. So I'm someone who likes to live on facts. And when you say, what does it look like? And do you like it? That's asking an opinion, which I find very frustrating because it's very difficult for me to take feedback from an individual. Um, so if you say you like something, it makes me feel really uncomfortable. <laughs> equally equally as much as if you say you don't like it. Um, because I'm, I'm almost a bit edgy about your opinion. I'd rather talk to you as a group so what I'll do is I'll group all those people into buckets and then I know which category you fit in and I know why you don't like it or why you do like it because you're a demographic and I've studied you and understood you as best I can. So I'll actually predict how much you're going to like something or not like something. And then there's a whole array, there's a spectrum of people who they will always like this thing and they will always dislike the other thing and then vice versa. So then you start ca uh, counting how many people are in each, each bucket and who should we focus towards commercially first, second and third to make sure we get the fat point, you know, in, in, the, in the, um, uh, the commercial in, you know, in terms of hitting the right people. So it's, it's a really interesting kind of balance of caring a lot about what people say and then equally disregarding a lot of what other people say. <laughs> <laughs> and how hard has it been launching a new brand, especially in the economic climate of the last few years? Yeah, really hard. <laughs> um, I don't know. Because there's a lot of them out there, aren't there? There's a, yeah. Yeah, a new one every month. So maybe. I had this conversation recently and not all are relevant to everybody. So what I mean is in the beginning, there, when you've got very little turnover, which you know, a few years ago we had very low turnover, um, we're competing to get into the next category of turnover. So, you know, if you're doing 100,000 turnover, then you're trying to get to 200,000 and 500,000 and a million and 2 million. So as you move up the scale of size, you start to compete with different brands. And in the beginning, there's lots and lots and lots, but they don't have much resource because they're all small. We're all small together. And I could never legitimately say I'm winning uh, customers off Rafa or, or Castelli or Asos because they've got millions of pounds of marketing budget they've got years and years of uh, trading history and uh, a lot of customer uh, habit is going back to those brands because that's what they know and it's a technical product and they don't want to take a risk on a new one in case it's just not good enough and they spend £100 on a pair of bibs or a jersey that they don't like so you've got to overcome that but you need money to overcome that so actually you need to focus on a different area that lets you and qualifies you to move up out of the first rung and then you go to the next rung where you do have a bit of money to spend on marketing and activation and content and you know giving people confidence that they're not going to take a punt on a new product or a new brand and that they'll be disappointed. And then as you get further up, so you get above a million and you get above two million, then it starts to be like, okay, now we've really got some uh, resources to work with. I've got people in marketing, I've got people in uh, content creation, social media, all that kind of stuff, feeding naturally our audience and then building the audience at the same time to give them something a bit more assuring. And that way, 
we make it easier for people to say, oh, that's a nice brand. And I feel confident with, you know, uh, the reviews and the, um, you know, uh, endorsements. You know, Bradley Wiggins, obviously a really big one at the moment. Um, and that's something I trust to deliver what I hope it will. And, and it changes. So actually, you know, we are all probably already in a category where genuinely our main competitors are Castelli, Asos, Rafa, maybe Map. Um, but that that's about it because there aren't many brands who've come up through the level to get to where we are to be able to sustainably, you know, win customers off each other. Um, and does it get easier? No. <laughs> that's a really disappointing thing about business. When you begin, you think this is the hardest thing I've ever done. And then you get bigger and you think, oh, this is now harder. And you couldn't conceive in the first stage that it could get harder, but then it does. And it's just like, oh, my God. I remember having a conversation with someone where they said, uh, oh, you guys are really pushing on, you know, lots of media, lots of marketing. You must be spending the money and excuse my language, but putting your balls on the line. And I thought during the conversation, I was like, do you know what? Yeah, the numbers are a lot bigger. But I remember when it was a thousand pounds in the beginning and I literally could not afford for that thousand pounds not to pay back. And that was more stressful. Now I have someone, an expert in that, in marketing, let's say, and uh, they spend the money <laughs> and I can hold them accountable. And it's not me because I'm a novice, you know, I'm not really an expert in anything. I'm just a, well, I'm, I'm an expert in product probably, but, you know, untrained, just it's all learnt in the field. So it does change. And, and your kit's made mostly, I think, in Italy, isn't it? Rather than the Far East. Yeah. What's the advantage of that to you? It's almost 100% in Italy. There's a couple of bits uh, in other European countries, but more like secondary products like casual t-shirts and things like that. That's really important. I, I felt like I wanted something with, with integrity and authenticity. And, you know, our, probably our USP is my insight from having been a professional. But you know, like I said, I go back to, I was a compulsive analyst. I was always trying to understand more of what was going on, partly because unfortunately for me, I've been born into a body that didn't quite have the talent of other, you know, Bradley Wiggins or someone. So I had to work really, really hard to make sure I, you know, got every last percent out of my performance. Otherwise I was going to get dropped regularly. I mean, I got dropped regularly anyway. Occasionally I came up with a, you know, a decent result to make me think I could keep going, which is why I only officially retired from racing in 2000, uh, 2016. But, you know, that mindset about trying to eke out every last drop of energy or performance is something that actually is a characteristic that is just as much applied to cycling as it is to business. Um, you know, if you think I always measure performance in per pound, what's the return? And that way, whether that pound is one of 100 or one of a million, it doesn't make any difference. I want to know what the performance metric of the pound is. In the same way, in cycling, you have watts. Well, how can I make the watts I can do in training worth more as a result? And am I wasting it? Am I eating enough? Am I using my gears? Am I drinking? Is my hydration right? Am I timing my efforts right? You know, all these things very, very much overlay almost perfectly into a business world. So my mind was really easy for me to sort of convert into a business and I've found it fascinating and interesting and very enjoyable at the same time as challenging and stretching and you know growing me as a person and, and Italy is paying off then in those terms is it? yeah because we have a really joined up business you know we own the manufacturing I have pro insight and I do um, work really hard to progress the product and I can translate that directly to the team that we have in Italy who understand me I mean this is after years and years it wasn't straightforward in the beginning I had to instill my mentality my ethos and Often I would ask to make developments in the beginning and they'd say, oh, you can't do that. And I was like, no, don't tell me can't. 
they say, but it's too expensive. I'm like, fine, tell me expensive. Then tell me how much and then let it be my decision where I say if that's too expensive or not. Because often I would say that's not too expensive. I'm happy to make the outlay because I think I believe in the progress that we can make with this. Um, but that took years and years of, um, you know, conversations and challenging responses that I was like, no, I'm not satisfied with that. The other thing was, um, you know, when, they, when I, look, I look after logistics and timings and, you know, uh, deliveries and they would say, oh, yeah, it should be ready soon. I'm like, no, it needs to be ready on a day and I need to know what that day is. And they'd be like, oh, but it's difficult. I'm like, fine, give me give yourself a bit of time and tell me the day and I'm going to hold you to it because I need to know what I'm telling the customer my side so I need to manage and plan and that's not an Italian way I don't know if anyone's um, dealt with Italians but northern Italy is, is actually better than southern Italy but still that took years and years so owning the factory enables me to have that direct line of communication they understand all the definitions they understand me as a person and us as a business and what we're looking to receive and how we need to be serviced and that has taken you know a lot of time and energy but could not have been done if they weren't part of the business do you still follow the sport I mean you were a British junior road champion and there's some amazing young British riders coming through at the moment I've been keeping up with the Tour of Lavenir results recently obviously with um, some of the riders that we sponsor in there and yeah it's amazing I mean I do I really I really follow the sport as Bradley has said you know he he is a massive fan and I equally I am too but it's more than that because I have an understanding of the sport having spent 20 plus years 23 24 years involved in it and having participated in it uh, and now still being involved in it because actually it would be very difficult for me to remain as involved in it as I am if I wasn't fully um, settled and come to terms with my own career in all of its pros and cons and the things I did achieve and the things I didn't achieve of which there's many you know lots I feel proud about lots I feel disappointed about but ultimately now I want to help and support the young riders coming through as part of our country and part of the people that we support as a brand you know I'm really pleased to see uh, junior national champions of which of the last three years I think we've had um, of the men's and women's I can't remember exactly but it's like six or seven of the podium places have been sponsored by us already like that to me is gives me such a warm feeling inside because by the time they get really good and start winning you know gold medals at olympics it's easy to pick them then and yes we do have those people and we spend money and we sponsor them but for me is a much more satisfying situation to find them when they're still young and coming through and i see glimpses of you know talent and then commitment and the right attitude and you say yeah we want to help these guys and girls and and we do and they come through you know the Baxteds at the moment are doing fantastically well Maggie is also um, Magnus Baxted is also really good at spotting talent and I always keep an eye on who he's got in his little junior feeder teams and stuff because they're usually really going somewhere. Thank you Yanto good luck with all your various activities in the moment I'll be speaking to Phil Anderson first non-European to wear the yellow jersey Grand Tour stage winner twice winner of the Tour of Britain. You're listening to The Ruler Podcast, supported by LACA, bicycle insurance powered by the community. My name is Rupert Englander. Um, I'm a self-confessed mammal and uh, I've been a member of LACA since probably about January 2018. I just love the model. The fact that the crowd is insuring itself, I I think, is a a really great approach. Um, It kind of seems to be taking insurance back to the the roots of insurance in terms of the way it was first done all those hundreds of years ago. The sort of the thing that really captured me was the fact that if there were no insurance claims in the in the crowd that particular month, then you wouldn't actually pay a premium at all. Worst case scenario, you had a full premium payout every month, you'd still be in line with the rest of the industry. But actually, if you consider that in many months there may not be a claim, it would end up a lot cheaper. 
And actually, in the first year, I think um, five of my 12 months, I had absolutely no premium whatsoever. So the Ruler Classic is coming up at the end of October. Early bird tickets are available until the end of August. This year, it's focusing on the Grand Tours, especially 100 years of the yellow jersey of the Tour de France. One of the confirmed guests for the Classic in London is the Australian Phil Anderson, the first Australian, in fact the first non-European, to wear the Maillot Jaune back in 1981. While riding for that most French of teams, Peugeot, well, Phil joins us now from Melbourne. It's nearly four. 40 years ago now, uh, Phil, that you first took the yellow jersey uh, in the Pyrenees. Talk us through um, that that day. You're putting me in my place there. It, uh, it seems like yesterday, but um, yeah, nearly, nearly half a century. But, uh, but anyway, yeah, it was my first Tour de France. It was my second year pro. I didn't get to ride the Tour in my first year. So it was 1981. I was, uh, it was the year that the Tour started in Nice, about five days into the uh the Tour de France, we were going in a um, clockwise around, so hitting the Pyrenees first. And I'd never really ridden in the mountains, but, um, you know, my team had warned me how difficult it was going to be. And um, we were instructed, our job was to look after our uh, team leader, and that was Jean-René Bernardo. Um, you know, he was brought in as a, as a recruit. I think the year before he was riding for Hino, so he was brought in as our, as our leader, you know, to place well in general classification. So my job well, all our jobs in the uh, Peugeot squad was to uh, look after Jean and I. So, um, yeah, day five, we're heading to the mountains. You know, we're thundering along, you know, towards the Pyrenees. I, I didn't really know what to expect. And, and we're getting faster. And the pace was getting faster and faster. And I was um, looking up the road to see where I could see the mountains. And I yelled across to, to my teammate. I said, um, you know, where are these mountains? They can't see us. You know, it, it seems like... Uh, it must be only a kilometre or so to go. We were like sprinting, like for a corner or something. And, um, you know, the, the teammate said, no, no, don't look up the road, d- down the road. You've got to look up there. And I looked up above the clouds and I could see these misty peaks of the mountains uh, that I'd, I'd never seen anything like that before. So like everybody else, I put buried my head and um, tried to get to the front. But, uh, yeah, that was ridiculous because, um, you know, you've got 180 riders galloping for I don't even know where the corner was. You know, of course, this was before, you know, anybody had Garmin's or, you know, radios or anything like this. Uh, we did have the little profile in our pocket, but, um, you know, I certainly didn't look at that. We were approaching the first climb. It was like uh, the Pyrrhusud or one of these climbs that they do every year. You know, I noticed that, right, you know, there was, there was riders getting dropped um, from where I was. I was pretty close to the back. <laughs> because I wasn't ready for it. And uh, I slowly started bridging some of these little gaps which were opening. And uh, by the time I got to the top of that, um, the first climb, the Pursuit, the field was cut in half. There's only like 100 riders left or 80 riders left. So I thought, oh, geez, this is uh, pretty good, you know, but i got to try and make up a bit of distance. i got to try and make it, uh, get get closer to the front. So so on the descent, I sort of t- took a few risks and uh, inside of the corner here and there and... Um, you know, got to the uh, bottom of the second climb. I'm not sure. I think it was like the Aspa. Um, and, yeah, I didn't know any of these climbs. Now I know these climbs like the back of my hand. But, but you know, back then, uh, you know, I didn't even know the difference between the Pyrenees or the Alps or the Andes. You know, for me, I was just following the wheels. And and uh, so we got to the, the bottom of the second climb. And the same thing happened as in the first climb, that the field thinned out, daylight opened between riders. And 
And, uh, you know, I found myself constantly in the back, but bridging up all the time. And uh, we got to the second, uh, the top of the second climb and, and um, you know, I looked behind and, and there was only, you know, there's only like 50 riders left. So it's getting better and better. Uh, you know, we're halfway up the second last climb and my director comes up, Maurice Demur, you know, sort of the, uh, you know, quite a, a known director in the field. He came up to me in the car, you know, you could hear his klaxon buddy blaring away. You know, this is before radios, as I said. So the, the directors would just come up. You know, they get the nod from the commissaire and they'd, they'd come up beside the peloton and he yelled out to me, hey, Philippe, Philippe, uh, Jean-René, Jean-René, where do Jean-René? I said, oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> We're meant to be looking after our, our humble leader, uh, Jean-René. And uh, I looked around. There was no Peugeot riders. There was no other Peugeot riders. No black and white jersey sort of stuck out a bit. And uh, there was definitely no Peugeot riders uh, behind me. And, uh, you know, I couldn't see one up the road. And so, uh, yeah, oh, Maurice, listen, I'll, um, I think, I don't think he's here, Maurice, and he was, he was really pissed off. And uh, I said, listen, I'll, I can, um, I'm pretty stuffed anyway. I can ease up a bit, and uh, you know, maybe he's in the, in the, uh, you know, the group just behind. And he said, no, 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 Phil, you stay there, you know. But uh, you know, he's like two groups back, and uh, but you come and see me tonight after the stage. You know, you got to listen to your instructions. So anyway, go up the, you know, over this last, over this penultimate climb, down the other side. Uh, the stage was to finish on Platete, which is a, a ski resort. You know, I never skied or, you know, from Australia. I mean, these mountains just blew me away. And, uh, you know, we get to the, the bottom of the last climb. There's only like 15 riders left. And I recognise the riders uh, just because I had some of them plastered on my walls back home in Australia. No real heroes. Riders like Devonay and Van Imp and um, uh, Hino, of course. Uh, you know, these guys were... were, were um, you know, the true champions of the, of the tours, past and present. And, uh, yeah, you know, there's a flurry of attacks. Lucent and Van Ipp attacked at the bottom of the climb. You know, he was, a, <laughs> he was an incredible rider in my eyes. You know, I thought he had um, wings on his ankles the way he took off up the road. And, and you know, the other riders looked to me to chase. <laughs> so, get out of here, you know, there's no way. So, anyway, there's a bit of a flurry of attack, you know, quickly on attacked and, and um, Hino, in his monstrous gear, you know, sort of uh, pegged him back. And uh, finally, there was um, there was only Hino, myself left, and um, with Van Nip up the road. So I just stayed with Hino. You know, tried not to intimidate him, or try not, you know, try and keep the speed there because I was very uncomfortable. <laughs> you know, I didn't really know what I was doing there, but. Uh, you know, I kept up with uh, Hino and, you know, we, we came around the last corner, you know, just a switchback right sort of in, in the town of Platete. And, um, you know, he, we both sort of kicked for the line. He beat me across the line. But, um, you know, so he got second. I got third with Van Imp winning. But the day before was actually a team time trial and, and the Peugeot team did very well. We got second to uh, the rally team, but we certainly uh, took a, a few seconds out of um, Hino's team, so that gave me the uh, yellow jersey. So, yeah, day five on um, Platate in uh, 1981, big day for me, and uh, you know, a bit of a bit of a turn for the sport too, I guess. Did you have any idea at the time of how significant that victory was, and that actually you were going to get the yellow jersey at the end of the day? Not really. I mean, I'd realised that I was going to be moving up. You know, I think we were all in the top. 10 or something because of our good result the day before and uh you know i wasn't sure how far behind um you know the, the Renault team was but 
I wasn't uh, certainly didn't wasn't thinking about you know the first non-European or anything like that. I won races and led races as an amateur. Uh, even, even in France, I won quite a few races. You know, two years previously, and in my first year as a pro, won a couple of small races, just a Kermes race and a I won another small race as well. But you know, nothing could really prepare me for well, even riding the Tour de France, let alone you know, figuring a result in it or uh, getting a jersey. It was, um, I had no idea of the, uh, you know, the repercussions of, of uh, what I'd done that day. And what was the response of the crowds on the roads and the other riders? Well, the public were very curious. You know, now there's, there's uh, non-Europeans figuring in the race every year. Uh, you know, you just look at the last, <laughs> last decade, Colombians and Australians and, and uh, you know, Americans and South Americans and uh, you know it's it's um, it's really changed. But back then, I was possibly seen as a bit of a novelty, I guess. You know, people came out to see if I was a Martian or what. They didn't really know what to expect. <laughs> In fact, you know, after getting the yellow jersey, I remember they used to have a show every day after the tour. Um, you know, they had a stage set up. And I think it was called Chacun Son Tour or something like this. And um, so every day after the stage, you know. They mightn't have the yellow jersey up there every day, but they'd always have some animators from that stage up there, and they'd interview them. and And I remember they they had me up there after I'd won the stages on top of the mountain. This is after the presentation and everything, uh, so it's a live live thing. and And the director of the race, I think it was uh, Levitin, what was his first name? Felix. Felix. Felix Levitin was up there, and he came up and congratulated me on the uh, on this live show. And uh, the interviewer wanted to know a little bit about this alien. <laughs> and he, so he was asking me, you know, Australia, that's a long way from here. And, um, you know, what are the sports there in, in uh, you know, and I explained, well, we have cricket and Australian rules football and, you know, a little bit of rugby and this and that. And, uh, you know, and they said, whereabouts are you from? You know, and, and out of the, out of the um, you know, backstage, somebody came running into, in a frame and they had a, um, you know, a map of the, of the, of the world. Okay, and France took up uh, possibly sixty percent of that map, <laughs> and then outside of that map, they had were the other European countries, and um, you know some other aspects of the Earth like America and and um, you know Asia. And when you look down the bottom, there was a tiny coin-sized island of Australia. And uh, you know, so I sort of pointed down there, you know, to the corner of Australia, and and uh, you know because they wanted to know where I was from, you know, and I explained I grew up in Melbourne. And, and so on, but um, you know, it was a big revelation for uh, somebody from outside of, of Europe to uh, do something like this. And um, you know, it's it, it's not really a big a big sport in Australia, but you know, we had some great um, cycling champions, mostly from the track. But uh, you know, there's also history in Australia of uh, some great uh, road riders uh, before me. Except you know, I figured in the in the Tour de France and. And that's the one that gets all the attention. So, Because you left Melbourne as a young rider and you went to Paris a couple of years before this to ride with the ACBB, the athletic club Boulogne-Bilancourt, who are sort of legendary now. Um, what was that like, uh, arriving at the ACBB and, and riding in France? Uh, it was a big step up for me. Uh, you know, I really did it. I didn't come over to France really to, you know, to get uh, to be become a pro I came over just to get some experience because I'd done well in the Commonwealth Games 
in 78, getting a gold medal in the road race. And I figure, well, after the Com Games, you know, this is back in the days when there was segregation between the pros and the amateurs. And as an amateur, you know, the biggest event uh, you could do after the Commonwealth Games would be the Olympic Games. So I came over to France and I had this invitation to join the ACUB to get experience in my eyes to be able to challenge um, in Moscow for the Olympics. So, you know, it was just a um, an experience. And, yeah, in the beginning it was very daunting. You know, there's a language problems. I was 19. I'd never, you know, I'd never left home before. I'd raced a little bit outside of Australia, just in New Zealand, and, uh, you know, the Com Games the year before. And so I hadn't had much experience at uh, riding in, in foreign places, speaking a different language in much bigger fields than what we race in Australia because you know, I was a club rider and you ride open races and there might be, you know, 50, 75 riders would be the biggest field you'd ever ridden in. And you get over, over Europe and uh, the fields are all close to 200 riders and, you know, riding constantly 150-kilometre days as an amateur uh, was something which is, um, you know, not done very often in Australia, certainly those distances, uh, you know, and, and so it was a big uh, step up for me and the learning experience, looking after myself. I sort of took it on board, I guess, and, and the ACUV looked after me. You know, they had, um, you know, strong team principles and, uh, you know, teach her about leadership and duties, you know, within a team. You know, they'd had some uh, great riders go through their, their doors when I was there, but uh, a lot of history before as well. So, as I said, I wasn't really there, you know, with aspirations to become a pro. I mean, I, I hadn't been ex- exposed to the professional side of the sport because uh, in Australia, I was a true amateur and, you know, represent your country. And, uh, you know, the highest thing you could do is, is the greatest thing you could do would be to, uh, you know, go to the to the Olympics. So that's what I was there for. And you wore the yellow jersey in the tour again in 82, but then you went on to have a really uh, long, successful career, stage wins in, in the Grand Tours, um, uh, one-day races. You came second in Flanders and Liège-Bastogne-Liège as well, didn't you? Did, you? did you enjoy the classics? Yes, I did like the classics. I, well, I lived in Belgium. Uh, for most of my career, Flanders was my backyard. Like those climbs, which uh, you know the climbs that, that you go over the Koppenberg, the old old Quarmont and the, the Murtergrammont or the um, Gersbergen is um, you know they were my training rides. I'd go over those climbs all the time. And um, yeah, I think my very first tour of Flanders, my job in the team was not looking after Jean Rene that day, but would be to go in the first attack. So like an idiot, you go, you go up in the first attack and. And um, you see it happen every year. You just the, those front riders. Well, certainly back then, uh, you just get swamped. You know, I remember the, the the peloton catching us or the leaders catching us going up the um, Copperberg, I think it was. And uh, I think I rode up, but um, yeah, it was a battle just to just to uh, stay on the bike. You know, I wasn't prepared for that. A bit like you know the mountains, I guess, in the, in the Pyrenees, but. But anyway, you know, I cut my teeth in those things, on those uh, climbs and in those events. And, um, you know, once I got a taste for it and, you know, it's in the the people in, in Belgium just go crazy and it's hard as a rider not to get um, swept up in it. So, yeah, I put a lot of effort and uh, resources into preparation 
training up for those events. I knew every cobblestone on in the Flanders route and every hill over in Liège, Bastogne Liège. You know, I, I used to pr- train specifically for those events. Yeah, I used to love racing in Belgium. And you're still riding by the sound of it? I still ride a bit, yeah, to try and get out the bike a couple of times a week. Just though when I do events or, you know, I get asked to do certain certain events, plus we do have a little travel business. So we take people away to, to, to ride their bikes in different parts of the world. You know, I'm heading off to Spain now for the Vuelta and, uh, you know, we've got a training camp in the Pyrenees. So I don't want my, uh, my guests to be waiting for me. So I do put a... Um, I do get out on the bike a couple of times a week, which is um, uh, certainly wouldn't be enough for um, racing at any level. But uh, yeah, I love I love getting out on the bike. Yeah, like like to get out more, I guess. But uh, you know, it's hard to justify. You know, when you're not really making a living out of it. Well, thanks, Phil. You're going to be joining us at the Classic in London, and uh, hopefully also the one in Melbourne a few weeks uh, later. Details of both are on the Ruler website. Phil, thanks very much for joining us on the podcast. Well, thank you, Ian. I look forward to uh, making it over to London and having some fun there. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.